I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is how few people have been involved in crypto. So in the entire world, probably something like 30 million people own cryptocurrency. If we're talking, if, if we think that cryptocurrency in 10 years is gonna have hundreds of millions of users, we don't need a single current cryptocurrency owner to still be involved. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This, presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and today I am speaking with one of my favorite people in this space, Ari Paul. Ari is a managing partner and CIO at Blocktower Capital, which is one of the leading crypto asset investment firms. He has a fairly traditional finance background. He worked previously as a portfolio manager for the University of Chicago, as well as a derivatives market maker and trader, and he holds an MBA from the University of Chicago. However, Ari has fully embraced the potential of crypto assets, and you'll often hear him advocating for them and the space on mainstream channels like CNBC. He's also generous with his thoughts on Twitter, where he posts at length about complex topics and also how he develops his investment theses. On this episode, Ari and I are going to discuss how he got into the crypto space, how he and Blocktower evaluate opportunities, whether or not decentralized protocols are winner-take-all, and what the largest barriers are to the adoption of these new technologies at scale, among a bunch of other topics. Ari is a very humble guy. He's also a passionate learner, so he's built a really impressive breadth and depth of knowledge in the space. He's also eloquent, so he's able to break down a lot of these complex topics into something more digestible. I learned a lot from speaking with Ari this time, and I'm sure you will too. So without any further introduction, here is Ari Paul. Ari Paul, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Decentralize This. It is a pleasure to have you, man. I, thank you. Thank you for having me, Tor. So we start every episode the same way, just quickly, professionally, personally. Tell me a little bit about who is Ari Paul. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's always funny to me when people rattle off long resumes, which, uh, especially in crypto to me are, are particularly unimportant, but, um, it, I'm, I'm Ari. I'm, I think of myself as a student, uh, just trying to learn as much as I can speaking practically. Um, I run a crypto investment firm called block tower and, uh, spent my, my career up to that point, uh, as a short-term trader and then as a kind of long-term portfolio manager and investor. Yeah, there's there's actually quite a bit of overlap in our backgrounds, which is always fun when I when I bring on guests. Um, usually, I have something in common with a guest. Uh, either it's like a love of games uh, when we had on uh, Coin Artist uh, or, or James from Loom, uh, and sometimes it's like a lot of things are overlapping. So in, in our case, uh, we were both derivatives market makers. Uh, we both hold MBAs. And we've both spent a lot of time in Chicago, which is where I met you for the first time, albeit briefly a couple of years ago. Do you even remember that? Oh, I, I'm I'm sorry, I don't. It, could you refresh my memory? No, yeah, absolutely. It was like the first meetup that I attended when I moved to Chicago, and I was trying to meet people uh, who were in the blockchain space here. And uh, you were the first person I talked to, and you were just telling me about what you were transitioning into doing from your time at U Chicago. And I remember saying, "Man, that guy was really interesting. I'm sure glad he'll be around." And then you moved. <laughs> I, I I do remember now. Uh, I actually and I, and I remember that meetup. Um, it, it, coin artist Margaret de Corcel actually uh, invited me to it. Yeah. So uh, we and, and and we're by the way investors in Blockade Games, her company. Oh yeah. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of of her and her work. So well, pleasure speaking with you again, Tor. After after a two year hiatus. I know. Let's let's make the next time. You know, like we should just do this every day. Uh, I know that's not feasible. Uh, you're a super busy guy, obviously. But I, I what I think would be interesting for people to understand is what got you into this space in the first place. As you said, you were you were coming from this very different kind of background of like either it was short-term market making and lo liquidity provision, and then you were doing uh, what you were doing for the University of Chicago. So what made you decide that this was really the path for you? 
It, it took me a, a while. Um, the first reference that I've been able to find to crypto, uh, I had totally forgotten about this, but one of my smartest friends who I really respect and back in 2011 sent me a New York Times article about Bitcoin and said, I think this is promising. And I answered uh, in an email to him, very brief, definitive answer, cryptocurrency will never have value because value comes from a historical societal appreciation of value or like gold or fiat backed by guns. So it took me another few years to really wrap my head around it. It's, it's been a gradual process for me um, and, and still very much is. I'm, I'm still learning a huge amount every day. I, I imagine in a year I'll look back on my current understanding and, and you know, feel like I, I knew nothing at this point. Um, the, what, what drew me to it was um, a few different angles. One is the, the promise of a tool to fight oppression. So I, I had relatives, uh, some of whom successfully escaped Nazi Germany, some who didn't. The idea of being able to provide refugees and, and political dissidents with a way to store their wealth that is censorship resistant and seizure resistant, a way to, um, if, if they can flee a country like Syria or Iran or, or possibly China now uh, with the shirts on their back, the fact that they can now carry their wealth with them is, is tremendous. Um, it, we, we think of refugees as typically being poor. Very often they're middle class when they leave. They're poor when they arrive on the shores of a welcoming country because they weren't able to take their wealth with them. And if you give them that ability, uh, many would flee earlier. So, so there are a lot of people who didn't flee Nazi Germany because the idea of putting their families into, po you know, impoverishing themselves was a high bar. Um, so that was, that was a big one for me, um, kind of the, the classical vision of Bitcoin in that regard. Uh, another was as a trader and as an investor, traditional asset classes are kind of boring. You know, we're, they're pretty mature. We're, we're, it's been what, 90 years now since Benjamin Graham wrote the intelligent investor. Um, what's amazing about cryptocurrency as a trader, it's, it's amazing. It's a playground as an investor. It's incredibly intellectually stimulating, trying to, to think about token economics and come up with basic valuation models. Uh, I mean, it's just wonderful being part of the ground floor of trying to figure this stuff out and, and I'm sure getting most of it wrong, but being part of that. Um, and, and the last is as a professional opportunity, if you're an investor or trade, so th that was kind of the, the, the intellectual side. Uh, and then from the commercial side, also the opportunity to, um, create an industry leading firm, you know, would have been impossible to do in any, in less than a decade or two decades in traditional finance. Whereas here it's so blue ocean that you, you we're seeing people in, in every area of crypto create industry leading firms in a year, whether that's on the marketing side, advisory, investment banking, trading, asset management. Um, it's just a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. It, everything moves faster in this space, right? And for people, uh, you know, I think here maybe it's it's that we were both in this like derivatives space. Derivatives market making moves very very fast. You know, you're, it's sort of like evolving second by second. On the other hand, it's as you said, it's like now a, a fairly well understood asset class. There's 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 valuation models that are universally accepted. There's robust market uh, infrastructure that supports it. This is really you know. Nobody really knows how it's going to turn out. And as you said, like things are starting faster. It concerns me a bit that things can start so fast because it also makes me feel like it could all fall apart. You know, what, what is, and something that I want to talk with you about on this podcast is this idea of like sustainability. You know, are we building a sustainable industry, not just one that's like an explosive and fascinating industry? Sure. Uh, so certainly the, the, the speed has the pitfall in from a few different directions. I think about as, as an investor, when we think about the power of an incumbent and first mover advantage. So for example, um, I think a mistake a lot of investors in crypto make is kind of an availability bias. Uh, I'll use one example. Um, in no way am I commenting on civic in, in really in any way, except for the context I'm about to say. So I'm not saying it's a good investment or a bad one, but when Noted. people were evaluating civic, the, uh, identity platform, they were looking at it in isolation. And a lot of people said, okay, we know that identity is a real use case. I understand the value. The civic team seems like a good team. Therefore I want to invest in civic. And as an investor, you really have to look at the competitors too. You can't look at a company without looking at, at its competition if you're trying to value it. And with Civic, it has a thousand competitors. There are many, many, many companies that are tackling the same problem in different ways around the world. There are even governments. So for example, the government of Estonia is doing a lot of interesting work. Um, and I, I'm not an expert on identity, by the way, but the, the issue was that 
none of those other competitors were ICOing. They didn't have a token. And so the crypto world was entirely ignorant of them. Uh, and so, and this is true of, of kind of everything um, in crypto uh, and, and, and it's accentuated with the pace at which new entrants can enter. So Coinbase, for example, is a Leviathan. They're gigantic, they're well-established, they've been around forever, but they're tiny and they're a startup. And how, you know, how strong are those network effects? How strong is that first mover advantage? How hard would it be for a, um, a company like Fidelity, for example, to capture meaningful market share from a Coinbase? Um, so, you know, the same is true for a, a, an investment firm like us. The same is true for, for really anything. You know, um, people talk about Ethereum as though it's JP Morgan and not as like it's kind of a startup with facing a tremendous amount of competition from new protocols with deep, deep pockets with top engineers. Um, so certainly that makes that we need to think about that from an investment context, which is to say that incumbents may not have as much of an advantage as, as we might assume, um, in terms of sustainability of the industry, uh, every tech revolution has gone through these boom bust cycles. I think it's kind of inevitable. Realistically, you can't do that much. Um, you know, I tried to be a voice of caution in November, December last year. I would tell people, uh, you know, hey guys, Bitcoin's up 19x from in in this year. Ethereum's up 25x. Uh, don't don't extrapolate that. Don't assume that's going to happen again next year. Don't invest more than you can afford to lose. Um, there will be boom bust cycles. There will be 80 percent, 90 percent market crashes in the next five to 10 years. It's inevitable. Uh, it's you know, I can't tell you when. I'm not saying from current levels, but but you need to you need to expect that because that's just the pattern of markets and the pattern of new tech booms. Um, obviously, there's a lot of fraud. There's a lot of capital uh, that gets poorly allocated in the ICO craze. That was also true of the railroad boom in the 1800s. That was true of the um, the roaring 1920s. That was true of the personal computer revolution in the 60s. That was true of the tech boom in the 90s. Um, we see this happen over and over, and it is less than ideal having so much capital allocated to scams and bad projects, but it triggers greed and interest and attention, and ultimately it results in good things. So you get this boom bust cycle, but every time you're you're moving the bar forward, uh, the ball forward on the knowledge base and the talent base in the eco in the industry and ecosystem. So frankly, I'm not too worried about it. One risk that you run in these kind of cycles though is that you're burning out the goodwill of the broader public around these kind of emerging technologies. And you could make the argument that the brand, just from a branding perspective, of something like Bitcoin has been materially affected by the fact that a lot of people bought into it from the broad public at totally unsustainable valuations. Or you could say the same thing for Ethereum or any number of other crypto assets that have gone through corrections. How do we go about making sure that people in the broad public hasn't, haven't lost sight of the long-term value of these projects? Or do you think it's going to take another boom-bust cycle to reattract that interest? Uh, the disillusionment um, is also just kind of part of this pattern. Uh, I, I think there's both a market psychology element, which is you're right. That person who was told that Bitcoin was, you know, going to the moon and bought at nineteen thousand, they may have sworn off forever. I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is how few people have been involved in crypto. So in the entire world, probably something like 30 million people in cryptocurrency. Let's say 15 million of those entered in Q4 of last year. They entered at a bad time and let's say they never ever are gonna touch crypto again. Long-term, it doesn't matter. That's 15 million people. The world has more than 7 billion. The, the, you know, if, if we're talking, if, if we think that cryptocurrency in 10 years is gonna have hundreds of millions of users, we don't need a single current cryptocurrency owner to still be involved. Right. It, it's going to be a new set of people who are the new owners, even developers. When people talk about developer network effects, they're meaningful, they're valuable. But the number of developers in cryptocurrency has probably gone up 10x in the last three years. And it has to go up 10x again for cryptocurrency to fulfill its promise. And so the current developer base doesn't matter. I don't want to overstate that. There's some brilliant developers doing amazing critical things. But um, if, if, you know, if 90% of the crypto developers vanish today, it would set us back by years. But you're going to get a new wave of tens of thousands of crypto developers. So I think uh, the same was true in the tech boom. You know, in 1994, there were articles about how the Internet isn't used for anything other than pornography. Uh, you know, you had people saying, well, email was invented in 19, email was invented, a good date for it is 1972. There's no exact date. By 1982, almost no one used it a decade later. By 1992, 
probably something like maybe 20, 30 million people around the world used email. So people looked at it and said, it's 20 years later and this tech is worthless. No one uses it. Um, and, and people who bought into the tech, tech stocks and tech boom and the promise of the internet in 1995, 1998, many were disillusioned. And, and it kind of took a decade to really recover from that. But at the same time, people were building along the way, you know? Um, so I, I think this, the, the cycles of disillusionment are natural, but they they are forgivable. We get over it. People said, how will Bitcoin ever recover from being tarnished by Silk Road reputationally? Or how will it ever recover after Mt. Gox? Or how will it ever, you know, and, and those things did tarnish it. They did hurt. But you get over it a couple years later. This is something I talked about with Anthony Pompliano for a little bit where we were talking about this idea of local maxima versus global maxima and you know what does it mean to have 100 developers or 10,000 developers or 100 users or 10,000 users? Does it even matter if we're not talking about users that are in the millions or the tens of millions? My question to you would be if you had to choose what you thought was the biggest barrier that we're facing right now to getting tens of millions of people adopting these, uh, whether it's cryptocurrencies or decentralized applications or, or something else that's coming out of this movement, you know, what, what's the biggest barrier there to, to, to actually having that happen in the next 12 months, let's say? I think it's mostly UX. So the, the simple, you know, if, if, if we want to grab someone off the street and say, here's uh, $6,500, go buy a Bitcoin. And that person is an average American who knows how to use a computer but isn't an engineer. It's not easy. Um, and, and when I say not easy, it's not that it's super hard. But uh, even something, you know, it, just to create a Coinbase account, going through AML, KYC, and, and Coinbase, the reason they've been so successful is because they are one of the most user-friendly um, platforms. But if they want to store that Bitcoin securely, if they want to use the Bitcoin not just as a speculative instrument on a counterpart on an exchange, but if they want to send it to a friend, uh, if they want to use a hardware wallet, if they want to use a desktop client and, and send it to a, um, a friend's public address, you know, it's still scary, right? The idea of copying and pasting a public address, it's the equivalent of using a command line interface, right? So, so um, back in the 70s, one of the reasons no one used email was you kind of had to use a command line interface. I've talked to some of the people who were among those first email users, and they were, they were doing the equivalent of compiling their emails, you know, you're not going to get widespread usage when you basically have to be an engineer or at least a, a hobbyist to, to use something. Um, so crypto, it, it's getting there. Um, having iPhone apps, which are with reasonably secure wallets like clients, um, abstracting public addresses. Um, these are things that are not technologically that hard, but aren't are, are kind of just now coming into place. And I think the first few use cases of crypto, uh, the original vision of, you know, uh, of cryptocurrency as P2P cash as a store of value, we're finally technologically we're ready for that. The UI is the thing holding us back with some of the other use cases. There, there's more obstacles. So, for example, um, a year ago, crypto games were basically impossible because you didn't have scalability. Now you have things like Ethereum sidechains like Loom that facilitate that, that I think give you enough scalability for, for some types of crypto games. So now there's a lot of obstacles though. So for example, software developer kits are kind of missing. It's, it's hard for a new developer. Basically, if you want to create a crypto game right now, you need to, you need smart contract expertise, uh, which is a huge barrier, right? There's, you know, making things, um, like if every iPhone app developer also had to be an iOS developer, you'd have a lot fewer apps, right? So having software developer kits, having um, great educational materials, uh, one issue is network effects. So, uh, you know, email is not very valuable if no one else has it. Um, so there's an element to just kind of gradual bootstrapping, the more, you know, and, 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 there, and that, that's a little bit, not linear, but uh, that has to be a little bit of a gradual process. Um, so I think first it's UI, and there's now a lot of focus on that. A lot of product managers and very product-focused people, product people have left Facebook and Square and Google in the last year and gotten into crypto. Um, on the institutional side, custody is a big thing. Uh, we're going to have good custody solutions in about six months. Uh, probably they'll be trusted in about 12 months. That's a little bit, that's not so much about getting 30 million users, but it still matters a lot. Like Fidelity is going to be launching Bitcoin custody in Q1. I don't know if they're going to immediately make that available to all of their clientele, 
But if you, you know, you're, if you're instantly boarding, onboarding tens of millions of, um, actually, I don't know how many clients Fidelity has, but uh, certainly in the millions, if you're going to be instantly providing all of those people with a way to buy Bitcoin and then instantly store it securely um, in a way that they really trust and, and hopefully with an in intuitive user, uh, user interface, that'll be very powerful. Um, it's not any one thing, though. Another big thing is use cases. So we, we don't yet have uh, killer apps. Some of that is things like lack of UI. Some of it has been people are exploring what crypto is useful for. So um, one thing I'm excited about, you know, you talked about uh, Loom and and um, coin artist Marguerite with Blockade Games. Uh, companies like Blizzard are exploring the idea of having in-game purchases be non-fungible tokens. And and that that is very intuitive to gamers. So one of the reasons South Korea has been such a aggressive adopter of cryptocurrency is because they're gamers and they understand that virtual items can have tremendous value. Um, and so I could very easily see, you know, 100 million plus gamers start using crypto in conjunction with games in a very intuitive way. Um, it needs to be offered. You need to have crypto games. You need to have uh, and, and, and that can come in a lot of forms, whether it's um, whether the game itself is tied to crypto or if crypto is just used as an in-game token or, or if it's used to track items. Um, I think once that's rolled out, once you have fun games, right, it's not, it's not enough to have a game exist that uses crypto. It has to be a fun game. It has to be something people want to play. That's exactly what Marguerite said when she was on. She said it was, you know, it's hard enough to just build a good game. Now you have to tell people that there's a blockchain in it. And suddenly, you know, especially if there's a UI issue still, now you've got this whole other barrier to adoption. And if we're saying that one of the cool things about cryptocurrencies or crypto assets is that they have different kinds of network effects, they have different kinds of incentive structures – you definitely want to get a lot of people exposed to it so that they can start participating in those incentive structures. Like there's no – you know, what's the point of having something that like might have some kind of like referral structure if they can't even get onboarded? So we're, games, games are definitely interesting to me. Are there any other kinds of applications that you think might be uh, a killer app that could get that scale of adoption in the short term? Yeah, um, I think one that I'm really optimistic, actually two, well, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, touch on two that I think I'm optimistic we'll see in 2019 uh, at, at meaningful scale. So one is remittances. This has been a, you know, a promise of Bitcoin for, and people talked about it from the white paper days, um, it, that has been very disappointing. So you, ha you have some usage, you have, you have companies like BitPesa in Africa that have done great work. Um, and for a variety of reasons, they haven't really achieved meaningful scale. I think that's going to change. Uh, one of the things that's going to change it is just commercial interest. So, for example, Ripple is looking at uh, – I'm not sure exactly where they are in this, but they were talking about acquiring a medium-sized um, remittance company. Uh, uh, the company behind Stellar was talking about the same thing. Um, an issue here is that often in the crypto world, the people in crypto historically have been engineers and geeks. These are not people who appreciate all the nuances and challenges of go to market. These are people who generally think, hey, if I build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a door to my uh, beat a path to my door. And the reality is uh, it, it's far more difficult. You need network effects. You need a physical infrastructure. Um, you can't just create an iPhone app that enables payment. You need um, you know, for, to have this be valuable to people in Kenya, for example, having local ATMs, having physical infrastructure may matter, having customer support infrastructure. Um, so, and, and the remittance networks, they're wary of crypto. They don't understand it. They've been very slow to adopt it, even if it's beneficial. So now you kind of have, uh, some more business minded commercial people in the crypto space who have gotten involved only really in the last year who know, I think how to blend those worlds. And so, um, the idea of acquiring a medium sized remittance company that has, that, that it has the, the physical infrastructure, it has the network effects, uh, it has the expertise in terms of what it takes to succeed as a remittance company, and you have the ability to now uh, replace their back end with crypto and dramatically reduce costs, increase speed, increase transparency, you know, all the wonderful benefits. Um, we're finally seeing those two worlds merge. So using Blockade Games as an example, uh, you're not going to succeed if your engineer is trying to build a game because the game's not going to be fun. You're not going to succeed if you're a gaming company trying to do crypto because you're probably going to mess up the smart contract side. You really need both. And only in the last year have we had teams composed of world-class talent from both sides. One thing that 
you said just now that's interesting to me is, is this idea of like traditional business people now coming into the space, this traditionally geeky space, but now you've got people from you know the the regular finance world let's call it i don't know how else to refer to it at this point there the lines are blurring every day uh but i feel like there's resentment from the people who've been working on these kinds of problems in the decentralization space you know for the past decades let's say at least since the bitcoin white paper came out and they're seeing the suits and they're seeing ripple and they're seeing a lot of this happen and they're they're huge skeptics right about, about like why do we need why do we need this? You know, why we were doing just fine. I, I don't really think we were doing just fine without, you know, actual business thought and like go to market strategies and, and, and thoughts about scaling and network effects. Like, you know, you, you can't just build a solution and hope people show up. You know, we need all these people in the room. How do we how do we convince developers to be less skeptical uh, about the business people entering the space? And how can we convince business people to be more respectful of the work that's already been done? Because I feel like they're stepping on toes a lot too. Yeah, you know, I, I think broadly the crypto world appreciates the need for good UX UI at this point. There's certainly big exceptions. There's plenty of the old school OGs, which uh, include some very important Bitcoin core developers, Monero developers, um, you know, who, who kind of take the other side that, hey, this is an engineering project. If you're not willing to use a command line interface, go to hell kind of kind of mentality. Um, I think they're now pretty few and far between. I don't think we need to convince them of anything because, the, uh, you know, like I, I, I'm thinking of one Bitcoin core developer he 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 should he can just focus on Schnorr signatures, right? He can focus on just the engineering of the core client. Let uh, you know, for example, um, you have Lightning Labs. Uh, actually, I don't want to confuse the Lightning companies. Um, you, you know, there's a few different Lightning co- uh, companies working on on Lightning, the Layer Two solution on Bitcoin, and. Um, uh, Elizabeth Stark's company uh, got, is now has Square as an investor, Jack Dorsey of Square, and Square is in, is uh, at least talking about integrating. I'm not sure where they are on this. Maybe, maybe they're further along than I than I'm aware uh, of integrating Lightning into Square. So you don't need every Bitcoin engineer to be thinking about this. You're going to have other people take care of it for them, and and, and by by building UIs as separate products, right? So. Uh, the Bitcoin core developers don't have to worry about wallets. Let other people build the user-friendly wallets. Where it can be a problem is when the protocols themselves make that difficult, um, which has, has been an issue. So a challenge with Bitcoin, for example, is the limited nature of the scripting language made it quite difficult to do even to add certain basic features that might be consumer-friendly as a, a, at the layer two level. So for example, um, you know, if, uh, allowing Lightning Network to work required a, a soft fork in Bitcoin. So um, sometimes you need a developer buy-in at the base level, but usually you don't. Usually the consumer stuff can happen uh, as layer two, as third-party products. Uh, in the other angle, um, I think businesses will come around when they're forced to. Many businesses don't need to know or care. So uh, here we get into the many different use cases of crypto. The use case that I first described of why what brought me into it as a you know defense against oppression, um, businesses don't ever need to agree with that for it to work. It's it's uh, it's like there's the old joke like you don't need to b- believe in gravity for it to keep you to the ground. Um, it doesn't matter if people believe that uh, crypto can help refugees escape um, as long as the tool is there for the refugees. Um, there are other use cases where it does matter quite a bit more. Um, on anything commercial, businesses react when they feel competitive pressure. So uh, when banks start replacing their back office, when one bank cuts their back office in half by using blockchain technology to track financial transactions, suddenly their profit margins go through the roof and the shareholders of every other bank ask why they're not doing it. Now that's a blockchain solution, not a crypto solution. Uh, it's not quite this, you know, certainly not the same thing. Um, but I'm just using it as an example. If there's a major innovation that adds value for business, what'll happen is some, this is the way it always works, it's never the biggest incumbents who move first because they have too much to lose. So what you always see is people who are kind of middle of the pack or bottom of the pack who move quickly because they have less to lose. And this is a it, it makes sense for them to take a risk. And then when they have success, then the medium and then the big guys eventually follow. And uh, I think we'll be you know, we so we saw that play out with exchanges where all the traditional exchanges like CME and CBOE, they saw that. You know, Mt. Gox, which was initially Magic the Gathering, right? That's what Gox stood for. It, it was it was a platform to trade Magic the Gathering cards. Suddenly, they're making tens of millions of dollars in profits. Uh, and then, you know, you have Binance make a billion dollars in a year. Well, the CME and CBOE, 
that draws their attention, right? They want a piece of that. And then as soon as the CME and CBOE have one of the biggest initial product launches in history. So Bitcoin futures, the volume hasn't been that good, but it was one of the best product launches ever in financial history in terms of volume. Very, very rare that you have a new, uh, a new derivative launch with tens of millions of dollars in volume a day. And those are great trading fees. And every big exchange in the world, the London Stock Exchange, you know, every competing exchange said, man, is this something we should be in? Right. Because it's 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 uh, it's too lucrative to pass up. Let's take what you're saying right now, though, and let's let's apply this just to like the blockchain space itself, because as you said, there's these massive protocols that you're saying people treat, you know, Ethereum as the JP Morgan of the space. Well, there's all of these, you know, new papers and new innovations and, and things that are just in laboratories, right? All of this is coming out on like a daily basis. There's so much experimentation. Um, and, you know, some protocols are going to be implementing some of these next generation solutions sooner than others. And of course, some of these are, some of these solutions are going to be broken. Uh, but some of them might actually work. Do you think that anybody in the in the blockchain space right now can afford to kind of like play catch up after the f- fact based on the network effects that they've already established or should every protocol regardless of how established they are or how big their community or developer community should everybody be looking at these like cutting edge uh new technologies even within the blockchain space and thinking about how they can integrate it can they kind of afford to wait to see how it all plays out it's an interesting question that touches on, I think, one of the most important investment questions in crypto. Um, so at a really high level, we have the question of how does open source have value, right? So I can fork Ethereum and create Ethereum RE in, you know, very quickly in a few minutes. Same with Bitcoin, same with any other open source protocol. Obviously, that fork doesn't have value because the values are all in the network effects. Um, but a challenge is one, network effects are still very minimal. So when we talk about, you know, okay, um, let's say a cryptocurrency has 15 million owners, that's trivial. That's a rounding error compared to where we all hope the space will be in five years. The developer network effects are great. You know, your protocol has 10,000 developers. Again, that's a rounding error compared to the number of developers we hope will be in the space in five to 10 years. Um, so one, I think the existing network effects are, are not as meaningful as people sometimes think. Um, with that said, if, if you don't have that, what do you have? So if I launch, uh, you know, a version of Ethereum with a few objective improvements, um, why does that have any value? Because the assumption should be that someone else is going to take my work and do the same thing to me that I just did to Ethereum, right? So I think we saw this last year where uh, there was a big focus on scalability. And so everyone's like, oh, Ethereum can do whatever it is, 13 transactions a second. We can do 20. Then someone else says, we can do 50. Someone else says, we can do 100. We can do 200. We can do 600. Um, As an investor, I looked at that and said, whatever the best option is today, there's going to be something better in six or 12 months. And Six and 12 months is too short to establish a moat, to establish network effects. And so I think basically all of these are research projects that are wonderful for moving the technological ball forward, wonderful for generating public IP, but they're not good investments because what are you investing in? You're investing in a minor iteration on engineering that someone else is just going to leapfrog in six or 12 months later. So I think uh, I, I, the way I think about the space is – you have a few protocols that actually have some meaningful network effects. Um, Bitcoin is by far the clearest with futures, global ATMs, uh, by far the strongest brand in terms of recognition, the most owners and users. Um, even that, as I've said, is not that big of a network effect because um, the total number of users and developers and all that is easily replicated. Bitcoin's major um, moat is, is I don't think any of that stuff. I think it's, um, it's protocol stability is a big one and the game theory stability. So the fact that Bitcoin's code has been basically unchanged uh, on the major things for three to four years now is very hard to replicate. It's very hard to trust in new code. And then the game theory, uh, the governance of Bitcoin, which is, has nothing to do with code, is entirely um, about the stakeholders, is, is powerful. So I have no idea what Ethereum is going to look like in three years. No one does. Right. We assume they're going to transition to proof of stake. And I don't mean this as a criticism. Ethereum is innovating very quickly. They're moving fast and breaking things. But if I'm thinking about Ethereum as a platform to build a company on or as a store of value, 
it's hard because I literally don't know what it's going to be. We don't know what the inflation rate will be. We don't even know what the consensus mechanism will be for sure. We don't know how sharding will work. Uh, are they going to have cross-chain interoperability you know, or cross-chain communication? We just don't know, and we don't know how they'll achieve that. Um, so all of those unknowns make it hard to view something as a, a stable platform. Um, Again, I don't mean this as a criticism. The, the pros of that is Ethereum is innovating very, very quickly, right, which is wonderful. Uh, so Bitcoin has, a, a, I think, a unique kind of moat in that regard that makes it um, it makes it the incumbent in some ways. Uh, everything else, I think, is competing on on tech and network effects. And it is a race to establish those network effects and get to market. And uh, I think you need a clearly differentiated narrative. It's not enough to have the best tech, because again, if, if I launch um, RE protocol and it's unambiguously the best tech, three months later, someone is gonna come out with a 2.0 version of it with modest upgrades to whatever I did. So um, there needs to be a clear story, a clear narrative. You need to capture people's passion and imagination until you've been able to scale up to establish network effects at the consumer level at the you know in terms of liquidity and exchange listing and futures and ATMs and that kind of stuff. Let's talk about what you just started getting into with governance and game theory and you know there's a ton of unknowns like you're saying in this space just on how you know I mean forget the unknowns about like how quickly is this space going to grow you know like what are the unknown unknowns around like the systemic risks to crypto like quantum computing or whatever anybody else might think. You know, like there's enough unknowns with just as you said, like how the Ethereum governance is going to look in a few years. If if you're thinking about this now, both as an investor uh, and also as a developer, either of applications or protocols, like how are you thinking about this issue of governance just overall? Like how how do you make sure you're doing it right to support the kind of network effects that you want years down the line? Because we're we're all building decades into the future. Uh, I don't think anyone really knows yet. So I, I, I view governance at this point as a grand experiment. Um, you have Bitcoin, which has as close to kind of no governance as you can get. Uh, you have Ethereum, which which is is very similar, but has a little bit of coordinated effort uh, by powerful leaders. Um, we now have a lot of great experiments going on with DPoS. Um, we have the EO, EOS block producer model, which is interesting. We have um, the Tezos uh, Tezos model. Cosmos will be released soon. Um, I, I I hope there will be many more experiments. Um, my intuition is that there's going to be different optimal governance models for different use cases. I think at a really big picture level, th something like federalism makes sense. So uh, my guess is that the most, I think, so I, taking a slight step back, I think we're probably going to have a few giant public blockchain cryptocurrencies. Um, not that many, probably more than one, but probably not 20. And then there'll be a lot of other smaller successes. Um, the, the analogy here in the business world is you have things like Facebook that have really powerful natural monopolies. And then you have things like car washes that are inherently local and where there are some car wash chains, but you also have a lot of mom and pop businesses. Same with, you know, you think about like your local uh, Chinese restaurant or your local um, laundromat. Those tend not to be chains. Uh, there just isn't a real natural monopoly. So I think we're going to have a lot of cryptocurrencies with more niche use cases that are smaller. They may be good investments if you get in at the right price, um, but there'll be a few giant winners. So I think what the way the world's going to look in 10 years, uh, and this is very speculative on my part. I, I don't know any of these things. I'm not asserting that there are smart people who disagree with me, but I think we're likely to have a couple giant blockchains with minimal governance, uh, something you know close to the Bitcoin model. And then what we're going to have is, um, if you think about like federalism, Bitcoin would be the equivalent of the current U.S. Or, or even really more accurately global legal infrastructure. Very, very minimal. Then you're going to have kind of the, the country blockchains. Uh, and I don't mean that they'll be geographic in nature, but you'll have things with a bit more governance, with more niche use cases, more concentrated stakeholders. Then you'll have the equivalent of municipalities. So I may have, for example, um, what would be a good example? Uh, you know, a cryptocurrency for a very specific use case that has uh, is never likely to grow beyond 10 million users. And that may settle to Bitcoin or it might be a layer three on top of Lightning. And that may have really active governance. And I get, I would get the benefits of the. So, so what are the benefits? The benefit of not having governance is you have fewer attack vectors. Governance is always a. Uh, it, with governance, you always get corruption. You always get get something like cartel formation. Always, you also get coordinated activity. You get coordination of of development. You can allocate resources more efficiently, more effectively. You can innovate uh, more efficiently. So there's pros and cons. 
the optimal solution, I think, is probably very little governance at a base layer. And that means that that base layer cannot innovate quickly and is likely to become very obsolete quickly, but it's very stable and safe. And then layer twos and layer threes or, or via settlement or via interoperability, uh, much faster moving, more responsive cryptocurrency ecosystems with much more active governance. That's fascinating. Uh, and I and I do like being able to conceptualize this idea from like the global level down to the country level, municipality level, just, just having that kind of mental structure for it. And of course, if we're projecting out as far as some people in the cryptocurrency space like to go, we may need to expand that analogy to include galaxies and universes and such. But I think it's apt for today, at least just looking at the amount of adoption we've actually gotten for crypto assets. Let, let's at least stop at Earth. And I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say we haven't reached galactic scale. Uh, yeah, the, the jokes about Satoshi being a time traveling alien aside. Um, yeah, we, we've got a little way until we're, we're talking Dyson sphere for proof of work. And uh, I, I love the sci-fi ideas. Um, I, it's funny. In some ways, we're moving towards that quickly. So, you know, we, we already have the Blockstream Bitcoin satellite, um, which I actually I to me is really valuable. And, and there's uh, there, there's uh, at least one company that is working on putting more crypto satellites in space. Um, it's that's I actually think that's uh, aside from being very cool that you can actually send a Bitcoin transaction, uh, even if you're, you're even without Internet access. Um, it, it's also really important for the censorship resistance because it, people don't appreciate this, but the Internet is actually a fairly centralized thing. It's pretty easy for countries to censor the, their Internet. So um, Iran, for example, has one entry point by which they are connected to the global internet, which makes it very easy for them to shut off their internet, which they've done several times. China has two entry points, and it's very easy to evade the Chinese firewall, but it's easy because they want it to be easy. They want their elites to be able to very easily circumvent the firewall so that they, so it's kind of a pressure release. Basically, the elites don't complain about the firewall because they can easily circumvent it. But 90% of people, they go with the easy, faster faster web connection and they, they look at the censored internet. Um, but the point is, if China wants to censor their internet aggressively, they probably can. Right now, uh, and, and I, I, everything I'm saying, by the way, I'm not an engineer. I don't pretend to be. I'm repeating what smart engineers tell me. Um, so packet sniffing is a very real thing. Right now, if China really wanted to censor all crypto uh, trans, uh, transactions and traffic, they probably could, or they could at least make it so you had to be a savvy engineer to circumvent. Um, so having satellites is is really important because I, I expect that many countries will do that or they will at least try. And so the fact that you can interact with these networks, even if you're in a place where your internet service provider, your, your regulators, your, even your government is banning it is really cool. Um, and it's a little sci-fi-ish. We now, you know, we're, we're not in other galaxies yet, but at least we're outside the inner atmosphere of the earth. That is a good step. And, and taking this uh, elements of sci-fi. I kind of want to move into our last topic here because a, a lot of this sci-fi stuff, right? Like it, it's all this like very speculative technology, whether it's a satellite or the whether it's in like new kinds of privacy technologies or whether it's scalability solutions or anything else, you know, so much of this is, is unproven at scale, you know? And when, when Joey came on, I, I asked him, you know, generally speaking about his investing approach and he, he, made a really great analogy. I do love analogies. He made a great analogy to the biotech space where he was saying that a lot of these blockchains and decentralized projects are in kind of like stage one uh, or stage two of, of testing trials. And investors are trying to make decisions based on like the early returns of these trials even before they get to stage three or beyond. Uh, if you are an investor in that position, and I know that you are, and you're looking at the early returns from some of these technologies or let's say you're even earlier, you're just looking at a white paper. What's going through your mind when you're placing your bets? Because these are bets, right? Nothing is certain. What's going through your mind when you're placing bets on teams and technologies? You know, it, How much of it is like where you see this having the most future potential, like the technology you're already seeing in front of you and you already see how it fits into the space? How much of it is just trusting the people behind it? Or, or what other metrics might you be evaluating? Um, yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I think, uh, let's see, I, I kind of divide, it, and, and this is a bit of an artificial distinction, especially in crypto where the lines merge, but I kind of divide this between uh, VC, early stage investing, and more, tr and, and uh, I don't even know what the, what the term would be, but just non-VC investing, investing in the equivalent of uh, uh, public equity or, or later stage private equity. Um, 
with VC investments, very often you don't have economic models. You don't even know what the addressable market is. You don't even have a, um, a path to profitability. So an analogy I like to use is the earliest uh, VC funds that invested in, say, Yahoo in 1995. Um, no one knew how eyeballs were going to get monetized. And there were a lot of people who mocked the idea of investing based on eyeballs. Um, and, and not only eyeballs, but prospective eyeballs. You know, and Yahoo didn't even have that many eyeballs in 1995. What you had to do to be a good investor in that, and I think this is true of all new tech, is um, you have to, to come up with some very, very rough estimate of addressable market. Uh, and, and, and my goal with that, by the way, is to be right maybe within an order of magnitude, meaning within a, a 10x window. So uh, I'm not trying to say, oh, I think Bitcoin's addressable market is, you know, 30 trillion. What I'm trying to say is, like, I think it's between 10 and 100 trillion. And that's accurate enough. And if I try to be more accurate than that, I'm probably wasting my time with artificial precision. So you, you need an addressable market for a use case. You need a confidence that the thing is actually valuable to people, right? So like internet search, you needed the foresight to see this is really valuable. Being able to search the internet is going to be really valuable. You need to come up with some idea in your head of what the addressable market is. Then you need to have some confidence that that value will actually be captured by whatever you're investing in. So the classic example here, um, you, know, you think about like the Fat Protocol thesis by Joel Manegro. Um, the problem with the internet was if you had the foresight to say that email is going to be really, really valuable, that didn't lead to great investments. It wasn't, it, it generally, the companies involved with the formation of email, uh, you didn't have that many private companies. ARPA um, was was kind of the first, uh, the first R&D behind it. Um, so you didn't even have that many investment opportunities. But even if there were some, they probably wouldn't have done well because it was open source. It was very hard to monetize. There is that's a problem in crypto. Um, there's a lot of engineering work being done that's going to produce value, but not for the investors. If the token economic model is broken, if there's no path to monetization, it's a problem. You don't need an exact uh, model. You don't need to have total confidence in it, but you do need to have some thought behind: is this value that can be captured by a token or or by equity in a company? Um, and that that's an issue. Um, I for me, it's, I'm ambivalent on many of the potential use cases. This is a big debate in the Ethereum community, for example, where uh, the the question is: if the Ethereum network produces huge value for the world how closely tied is that to the value of the ETH token? So I can tell you my conclusion is it's definitely tied. Um, I don't think all of that value can be uh, removed via economic abstraction or via other methods, but I don't really have any sense of what that relationship is. So if Ethereum is generating a trillion dollars a year in consumer value, it, does that lead to a $10 trillion Ethereum token value or $1 trillion or $200 billion? I don't know. Um, with some, it's really obvious. So for example, with Bitcoin, uh, anything that, that we, and this could be true for Ethereum for sure. Um, for the store of value use case, the profit margins are a hundred percent. So if I want to have a dollar of seizure resistance, a dollar of my assets stored securely, I have to own a dollar of the asset. It's a hundred percent of the value I'm receiving gets reflected in the value of the token. That's, that's an exception. There aren't many other use cases where there's such a clear relationship, but, um, you know, you need some confidence there's a relationship. And then I think very much it is a, it is it is hope and praying with a team. So, uh, you know, I mentioned the issue of competition. Um, when you invest in an early mover with a, a, a startup in a new tech space, you don't know who their competitors are going to be in two years. You have to assume they will face competition. Uh, there's no way to intelligently evaluate that. So there is an element of you're hoping this is a rock star team and, and you're doing the diligence to try to support that thesis. Um, and, and it is probabilistic. So VC funds are never confident they found the next Facebook. What they're hoping to do is, hey, if we bet on 10 next Facebooks, we're hoping that one of them is right. And that one will be a you know 200x return for us and we'll make the, the fund. So um, I think with the earliest stage, uh, it is a hope and a prayer on the right team tackling a real valuable use case. The key there is that you get in at the right valuation. So it's all well and good to say, okay, I, you know, I'm gonna invest in 10 things hoping they're the next Facebook. Well, if the valuation on each of those is a billion dollars, you're probably not gonna end up with a good outcome. Because if, if each of those bets is you know, low probability to succeed and, and based on optimism, you really need to get in at a low enough valuation so that when you have, when you find a winner, that makes up for a lot of losers, right? Like if, if I'm, if I'm right, uh, I mean, uh, like, here's the math. If, if, if the, if the, if the thing, if it succeeds is worth a 10 billion and it has a 5% chance of succeeding 
and I invested a billion dollars, I'm losing money on average, right? If I invested $5 million, that's amazing because I can be wrong, you know, 300 times and that one success will pay for it. So that's the earliest stage. Some crypto investments, I think of, uh, I, I do look at the current network activity. I do look at, um, so the exa- there's very few crypto assets that are used today at scale. Um, Bitcoin, its value has historically tracked its transaction volume pretty well. Monero is, is used to a reasonable degree today. Um, something, for example, that, that my team is talking about today is we're watching Augur transaction volume closely and, and the markets and how that evolves. So right now, the Augur valuation is a somewhat, uh, no, no, not somewhat, a very optimistic bet on Augur gaining traction. Uh, I, I can, um, yeah, I, I can't, uh, I, I have to be a little bit careful as a, um, as an investor, uh, kind of being too specific publicly, but, uh, it, there's a lot of optimism built in. Um, right now it, you, you would probably need a pretty strong opinion that you're going to have uh, a lot of traction growth, but something that we look for, for example, is let's say the, the, the number of bets on Augur, both in terms of dollar, uh, total dollar amount and, and quantity were to go up by 20 X over the next four months and the price didn't move, uh, I'd be a buyer, uh, for sure. You know, so, uh, whenever, whenever the price of an asset doesn't respond to fundamental improvements, that certainly is an investor, something we look for. Yeah, this is, this is all gold, right? Like it's all fascinating and it's from somebody who is in there every day trying to make these kinds of decisions. Somebody who I think is, you know, I, I find you to be a very humble thinker about all of this and you, you know what you know and you know what you don't. And I know that you're always trying to learn from others. As you said up top, you're a student in this space. I consider myself a student as well. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are avid students uh, of yours at this point and, and they uh, have benefited a lot from hearing your perspective on this. And then there's a hundred other things we could talk about, but uh, we're going to leave it there. We may have to do a part two. I don't know. But Ari, it was so fantastic to have you on to talk about some of this stuff. Um, maybe if people want to hear more about uh, the things that you're thinking about, whether it's governance or investing or the future of these protocols or satellites and sci-fi, you know, whatever it is, uh, how can they keep track of you and your work and Block Tower or anything else that you think that they'd be interested in? Uh, Twitter's probably the best. And anytime I write an article anywhere, I, I will post a link there, um, and usually post links to podcasts and things like that. Uh, so I'm, I'm at Ari David Paul on Twitter. Um, probably, probably more stream of consciousness there than most people might want. <laughs> but, uh, nice, nice thing about asynchronous communication, I, a great line from, um, I, uh, I, I reached out once to Naval Ravikant of AngelList, and of course, as a um, Naval is uh, one of the, the team at Metastable and is deeply involved in the crypto industry. Um, and I'm, I'm bringing him up really for one random one-off line he said, which was um, that he prefers asynchronous communication. Uh, asynchronous just meaning you have the ability to digest and read and respond at your leisure. Uh, and you know, so the nice thing about, about things like Twitter and one of the reasons I'm on it a lot is, um, it's so convenient as a way to just, you can choose how much or how little or how frequently you, you imbibe from the, 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 the spigot that is crypto knowledge. Yeah. Twitter is a, is a great platform. I will definitely add the link to your Twitter in the links below the podcast description so that people can continue to benefit from your wisdom at their leisure. Uh, and I'm sure hopefully they'll re-listen to this podcast multiple times. So Ari, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, all the best, man. I hope we do this again soon. Thanks for having me, Tor.